Let's turn to Genesis chapter 5 in our Bibles. So we'll be back at the beginning of our Scripture. We'll be in Genesis 5 as we continue our journey through this first book in the Bible. As you guys head to Genesis 5, let me just remind you where we were last week in the fourth chapter of Genesis. What we saw was the beginning of the family unit there with Adam and Eve and then the birth of their first child, Cain. And as Adam and Eve bring forth this first child into the world, they no doubt referring back to what God had told them that in chapter 3 from the seed of the woman is going to come this tremendous hope that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so as they give birth to their son named Cain, they said, we've got it. We've acquired the one. We've got the one. This is the child. And then like happens with most first time parents, the kid gets bigger. And we're like, this is not the one. Not even close. <laughs> not the promised Messiah at all. In fact, as they have their second born son comes into the world, Abel, what Eve names him is Abel, and in the Hebrew the name is vanity or emptiness. Like that promise is empty, null and void. No longer do we believe from our scene or from our line is going to come this great hope. What we find is then as Cain and Abel grow up, uh, Cain falls into the profession of that of a farmer, a tiller of the ground. And for Abel, he becomes a shepherd, one that would take care of the sheep. And when it came time for them to come forward and to bring about the sacrifices there that God had commanded them, that Cain brought forth the work of his hands, the fruit of the ground, but Abel brought the first of the sheep. And so he brought forth an, an animal to sacrifice before the Lord. And what we read is that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God, but Cain's was rejected. And at first pass, you look at that and go, why would God be so mean? Like, why would God have rejected Cain's hard work, the sacrifice that he brought forth? Well, but what we saw last week is, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, is that Abel brought forth the sacrifice of blood, an animal, by faith. That by faith, Abel presented this sacrifice. And what we realize from Romans chapter 10 is that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Which means if Abel brought this sacrifice by faith, he must have heard from God's own Word that he was to do so. And so Cain was going against God's Word because he thought he knew better. And so he was bringing forth the work of his hands as he brought forth the grain offering there to offer up to God. And what we find is this is the result of failed religion. Failed religion is ultimately our desire to take the work of our hands and to reconnect with God, to somehow attain to the infinite God. And what every failed religion eventually leads to is exactly what happened with Cain, uh, bitterness. Failure and bitterness because we cannot attain to the true and living God. It's never going to be enough. We're always going to be left with this feeling of, did I do enough? Did I work hard enough? And this is precisely what happens for Cain. And as he becomes bitter, but will not get better as a result, he continues to go down this path of bitterness. It transcends throughout the generations of his family. And we see a continual and gradual departure away from God all the way to the point where he has a great-great-great-grandson that they name Lamech. And this word in Hebrew means poor or lowly. And what I shared with you last week is this is where the root of bitterness always leaves us. Poor and lowly. When we reject God long enough, we are poor and lowly. That's the result. And so as everything looked to be completely lost in Genesis chapter 4, and we thought this is as bad as it could possibly get, 
In verse 25 we read, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. This last sentence here in verse 26 could be translated like this directly out of the Hebrew. Uh, Then men bore the called name of Yahweh. That here you've got this godless group, this godless generation that have turned completely away from God, but through the line of Seth, men began to be called by the name of God. These were, these were God men. This is what is being communicated, and so you have the hope of a remnant. And the beautiful promise of God is He always leaves a remnant. There's always those there to still call on the name of the Lord to provide this avenue of hope. So all that leads us up to chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to ask you to show hands and embarrass anybody to see if you read ahead. But if you read ahead, did you notice that chapter 5 was a genealogy? So for some of you that noticed that, uh, you showed up at church anyway, wondering what in the world I was going to do on a Sunday morning with a genealogy. And for the rest of you, you're completely surprised that you're going to get a list of names on a Sunday morning, and you're wondering now, why did I get up and get myself ready to come to church? Oh, stink, I should have read ahead. But nevertheless, we're going to go through a genealogy today, but we want to start with asking, why do we need this? Like, why? This is flyover territory. Why do I need a list of names in Scripture anyway? And so a few things I wanted to start off with concerning genealogies is that, first of all, a genealogical record, any genealogy we see in Scripture, if it's not tied directly to Jesus and doesn't end up with Him as the Messiah, every single one of them eventually tails off. They don't continue except to bring us to the line of Christ. And so it might go for four or six or even twelve generations, but eventually that genealogy goes away, except for a genealogy that concerns the line of Jesus. And what we find is through the genealogical records, this is really ultimately the scarlet thread that ties together Jesus and into the New Testament. And so if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament, what you find is a genealogy. This is where you skip past in your Bible readings to get to the real story. And yet, what you find is through this list of names, it connects Jesus all the way back to King David. Remember that prophetic word that David was given that from his lineage was going to come the Messiah, one that would sit on the throne forever. And so what Matthew does is he addresses that by tying David's line all the way to the line of Christ through Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. Now that's important to note because what Matthew was writing to was a group of Jewish people. And they were mostly concerned with, does the Messiah have the correct genealogy? So uh, Matthew goes to great lengths to show us Jesus did in fact have the right pedigree to fulfill this prophecy. That's the other key piece with genealogies. They fulfill the prophetic promise of God. And so we see this promise fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But for you Bible scholars... You're starting to scratch your heads. You're like, wait a minute, but Jesus wasn't from Joseph. Joseph ain't Jesus' real daddy. We know that because we've read the Bible story. Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and so we've got a problem until you skip forward to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, what you see is, oh, you got it, another genealogy. You guys are so thankful for Sunday morning. You've got another genealogy, more lists of names. But what you find as you go through this list is the names are similar, but at some point they're actually different, a different grouping of names. And the reason for this is this isn't Joseph's 
family lineage, but this is the family tree of Mary. What God promised was from the seed of the woman would come forth the Messiah. And so we have now the genealogical record of Mary, and what we find is her same line comes from, you guessed it, King David, but through a different son of David, Nathan, instead of his son Solomon. And so we have this promise that's given by God that traces all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, from the seed of the woman, I'm going to send the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush his head, and the promise of Jesus is revealed there in the New Testament. And this reminds me of a saying that I love from a guy named Chuck Missler, who was a Calvary Chapel guy that's gone on to be with Jesus. He was based out of Idaho, but he would say, the New Testament is the Old Testament concealed, and the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed. When we read through our New Testament, we're seeing revelation of these Old Testament promises, these Old Testament prophetic words that were given, which just lends to the fact that this book is the true and living Word of God. It has to be. This is thousands of years of prophecy played out in the life of Jesus. Now, all that leads us to chapter 5, verse 1, and you guys are so much more excited about genealogies than you were before. Verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And so what we find is in chapter 5, we have this connection, this bridge from the dysfunctional line of Cain, where things were going to hell in a handbasket, to now the godly line of Seth. And so we're going to have these 10 names that are listed out in chapter 5, which by the way, in uh, Luke 3, those same 10 names are going to show up as uh, Luke processes through this connection back to Jesus. But nevertheless, you have Adam being created by God, made in the image of God or in the likeness of God. So as God creates Adam, he makes him spirit, soul, and body. And it's important to note that we are created as spiritual beings. How God actually relates to us and connects with us is as a spiritual being. If we desire to have a relationship with him, what we find is we have to have it in spirit. This was a confusing idea from John chapter 4 that the Samaritan woman was trying to figure out while she was meeting with Jesus there at the well. She was confused by religion. I know none of you have ever been confused by religion before, but this lady was like, I don't get it. Uh, The Samaritans say worship here. The Jews say worship there. I don't understand all this religion stuff. And here's what Jesus says in verse 23. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. That the hour is coming where we have this opportunity to worship God in a true relationship with Him in the Spirit, but for every one of us, the issue is we are spiritually dead at birth. That when we come into this world, We are disconnected because of the nature of Adam that's been passed down from us. We all got the toe tag on, right? We are DOA, dead on arrival, spiritually when we arrive. This is why Jesus, as he's teaching Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. You're, You're spiritually dead, and so to worship God, to connect with God, you must be born again, anew, afresh. It has to happen if you desire to actually worship him. That spiritually, Adam died just as God said he would when he took of the fruit. 
when he decided to disobey, to choose his own direction instead of God's, he spiritually died that day. No longer was he spirit, soul, and body, but he became like we are in our flesh, body, soul, and spirit. Directed, pulled on by the flesh. The flesh is always demanding for more, demanding for our attention, but we're called to be led by the Spirit. And the Spirit is the what is connected with God, how we worship Him. Now, what God said is, on the day you eat of that fruit, you're going to surely die. But what you know is, Adam didn't die right away, physically. But he did die right then, spiritually. And what we're going to find, because of this phrase that's going to appear over and over again in this chapter, is a spiritual death always leads to a physical death. Now, we're going to continue in verse 2. He created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And so what we find is Adam and Eve are gathered with God there in the garden and God performs the first ever wedding ceremony. He has Adam and Eve come together and He, he blesses them. He brings them together where two become one flesh. And so He brings them together, he, he blesses them, and then He calls them mankind. Now for some of you that have the original King James Version, that word mankind is actually the word Adam. So what happens is at the first wedding, as God performs the blessing, He says, you, Eve, will now take His name. You will now be called Adam. And so the leadership of this family dynamic starts right there. And you have the foundational elements, the building blocks, of the first uh, community, the first uh, family that begins. And so what you find is, this is why Satan is always trying to attack this as a building block. This is why he's always trying to come into the family and destroy things from the inside out because this was God's original plan from the very beginning. And so all the confusion about this identity or that identity and who I am and what I am, it's all being perpetuated by Satan who wants to attack the original building blocks of the family. But it starts with husbands and fathers who are called to lead. Now this may uh, upset some. I don't intend for it to, but I want to make it perfectly clear. Uh, as a father, as a husband, I am called to lead. And that means even spiritually. Now, for some of you, immediate red flags. Because you go, wait a minute, I'm not as spiritual as my wife. Does this mean I have to be more spiritual than her. And for that, I would say, absolutely not. That's not what this means. This means that you're to lead spiritually. And I would ask you, if you've ever led a group of other people for any reason, in work, at home, in sports, are you more talented than every other person on that group or in that group that you lead? And if the answer is yes, then I would tell you, you're terrible at picking a team. Because for me, what I find is when I pick a team, I want people better than me on my team. I want people that are more talented. And most of the time, everyone on my team is better than me. Now, I might have certain giftings or be better in other areas than them, but I want people who are gifted and talented even more so than me, but it doesn't remove the fact that I'm called to lead. So too, it's true with a husband and a wife. That more often than not, the wife is more spiritual, but the husband is still called to lead. This is the case in my marriage. My wife is exceptionally more spiritual than I am. Now, you don't believe it, just talk to her for a few minutes. Like She's got a way better antenna to pick things up. I don't get half the stuff she gets. And she'll ask me, I'm like, honey, I'm obtuse. I, I, don't, I don't get anything of what you just said, and yet I'm still called to lead her. Now all this I'm bringing up to say, as God is establishing this 
foundational building block of the family, and he's called uh, husbands and fathers to lead. You may not agree with me, but what you can't disagree with is the statistics. I went on multiple websites this week from uh, Lifeway to Barna Studies to the Catholic Exchange, looking at this and researching it. And what I found is that here's just a sampling of some of the, some of the statistics concerning dads going to church or attending church is that if dad does not attend church, I'm not talking about being a superstar spiritual leader. I'm talking about butt cheeks in the seat, like showing up at church. If dad does not do that, children are one in 50 with the chances of sticking with their faith. By my mathematics, that's 2%. There's a 2% chance that a kid will stick with their faith if dad doesn't show up at all. However, if you look at dads that do show up, I'm talking about just you got a pulse, you're an attender, you got your bottom in a seat, you show up on a Sunday morning with the family, here's the numbers. Kids are 1 in 2.5 that they may stick with their faith. That's 40%. 20 times more likely if we as husbands and fathers lead our family spiritually. If we just show up. Now imagine what it looked like if we actually Love Jesus, right? Imagine what it looked like if we really tried. Now, I'm saying all that to a group of men that are here. So, good job. You made it. I'm not picking on you at all. But what I am saying is there's a whole world that's not. There's a whole group that it's not that way. It's not the case. And it's a battle. And so, what I want to encourage you to do is encourage other men to step up and lead their family. Because the last thing I want to mention regarding this is our kids are going to love whatever we love. I realized this a few years ago when the boys, even at you know five and six years old, were yelling at the TV on a Sunday afternoon at a Colts game. And I realized like, they've never known the Colts to not be terrible. Like They have sucked for the entire time that they've been alive. They didn't know what it was like to have number 18 as our quarterback. We're winning all the time. They had no clue. And yet, they still cheered and loved the Colts. And the reason was, because I did, you see. And so they will love what we love. So imagine if you take that and you say, look, I'm going to love Jesus like I love football. I'm going to love Jesus like I love fishing. And if that's the case, that's the dynamic. You have a, a family that's set up for a tremendous amount of success spiritually. We can leave our kids all the money and all the inheritance we want to leave them, but what's it going to be worth if they're bankrupt spiritually. And so the encouragement here is to step up and lead. All right, and enough of that harangue. We'll continue with the chapter. Verse 3, Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And after he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years. And he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And so what we find is uh, Seth, whose name in Hebrew again means appointed, was born in the likeness, notice the difference, not in the likeness of God, but in the likeness of Adam. With the same sin nature as what Adam had, what Adam possessed. And so you see the change that's happened in the text. He was born to Adam and Eve when they were 130 years old. Now, important note as we go through this, that Adam and Eve didn't wait until they were 130 to have more kids. Okay, They had sons and daughters. They would have continued to have children. It just meant at 130 is when this son 
was born. And so that's important. We'll, we'll track that as we go through this. But Adam lived to be 930 years old. I want to point that out because we see these long lifespans that exist before the flood. But what you remember from Genesis chapter 1 is the earth had a water blanket or a water canopy. The firmament was above the firmament, meaning that the earth had this greenhouse type environment that we would have been able to exist in. And all those ultraviolet rays weren't able to come in and destroy these tabernacles like what they do today. The, the sun destroys our bodies and so does the weather and the conditions that we live in. And so what we find is they're existing in this perfect kind of a climate. All, on top of that, you have a, a perfect bloodline, a pure bloodline that exists. Not like what you and I are dealing with where we've got genetic defects that are passed down as the copies are made of the copy of the copy of the copy of the copy that perpetuates over the course of time. And so you have all these factors leading to long uh, lifetimes, which means if you lay it out there, Noah, think about this, would have been alive when Lamech, who, excuse me, Adam would have been alive when Lamech, Noah's father, was on the earth. Now, the reason I bring all that up is to say that uh, people that want to pick on the Bible will say uh, there's no way that these stories could have been passed down for all those generations and remain intact. The integrity of these has to be compromised until you realize that Adam would have been able to give these stories directly to his great-great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, who would have passed them to his son, Noah, who would have given it to his son, Shem, who was alive in the days of Abraham. All of a sudden, all these generations boil down to four different people have to learn these stories, that have to hear these stories before it's in our modern-day patriarchs. And so the story of Scripture is well intact. And yet, as we look at this, this phrase, and he died, is going to appear over and over again in the text today. So even as Adam lived 930 years, this great big long life, and sons and daughters are born to him, still the result was the same, and he died. It's the first mention we see of this, which is exactly, by the way, a fulfillment of what God said was going to happen back in chapter 2 if they ate of the tree. And so often we find in our lives, we're pretty sure that God's fulfillment is going to happen tomorrow. God's given a word, it must be happening. Maybe it's happening right now. I don't know. And yet... God is patient with us. The same thing is happening here for Adam and his descendants. But the problem we have is so often we mistake God's patience for his acceptance. We look at God's patience with us and go, God must be okay with the thing I got going on in my life right now. And so we begin to fool ourselves to thinking that the time that's passed, God probably just forgot about this thing or he's okay with this thing. And we don't realize the fact that his time is actually a picture of His grace. He's given us grace. He's given us opportunity to get things right. What Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 is this, Beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering or patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is not slack concerning His judgment. God is not slack concerning all the promises He's made. And yet what He's giving us is time, an abundance of time, in order to get it right. God is on the outside of time, so He sees things way differently than you and I. But He is, by His very nature and His character, 
abundantly patient with us. And I'm so thankful for his patience. You think about where your life was not that long ago, you have to be thankful for the patience of God as we work these things out. Now we continue back to the text in verse 6. And Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. And after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And so again, remember, Seth didn't live 105 and then started having a family. He had had sons and daughters prior to this. It was only when he arrived at 105 that his son Enosh was born, being in the line of Noah. This is the genealogy we're concerned about. Now, as we understand that, it's, it's important to note that every other genealogy that's not in this line concerning Noah is about to be wiped out in the next chapter. So this is the only line that actually matters, that really tracks. But the name Enosh in Hebrew means mortal. Now we continue in verse 9. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Now the name Canaan in Hebrew means sorrow. Verse 12, And Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalel. And after he begot Mahalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And so we see the name of Mahalel means the blessed God. Now verse 15, Mahalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. And after he begot Jared, Mahalel lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. And so the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. Now that name Jared means shall come down in Hebrew. Verse 18, and Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now the name Enoch in Hebrew means teaching. Verse 21, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now we have this man, Methuselah, oldest man in the Bible, but his name in Hebrew means his death shall bring. That's an awesome name to name a kid, isn't it? Here's our son, little his death shall bring. But you have to wonder, like, why would you name a kid that of all things? Except, again, if you lay these names out, historically, what you find is on the day, that, or the year, excuse me, that Methuselah died, the flood of Noah happened. And so his death shall bring the judgment of the world. That's what this was referring to, the prophetic promise inside that name. Now, verse 22 after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 360, excuse me, 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, this is a fascinating guy, Enoch, because what we see is throughout the text, it's been, and he died, and he died, and he died with some exceedingly long lead times. And by the way, if you just do a little bit of math on how long these guys lived and if they would have had kids every year like they were able to have, you'd find that the earth's population is now in the billions. This is how quickly the population could have swollen. And yet for every single person up to this point, they've got this same tagline, and he died. Until we get to this guy named Enoch. 
And we, what we know is that and he died tagline makes sense because Paul says in Romans that uh, the wages of sin is death. And so we understand in the likeness of Adam, all are going to have to die except for this guy who was caught up or taken away. And this phrase caught up that appears in the New Testament is the word harpazo in the Greek. Now, for anybody that says, look, the word rapture never appears in the New Testament, I always share with them this, that you're correct because uh, rapture is actually a derivative of a Latin word, and the New Testament was written in Greek. The word harpazo in the Greek is translated rapturo in the Latin, where we get our word rapture from. And so the word rapture does, in fact, appear if you connect it to this Greek word. And what we find is Enoch was raptured, taken out, caught away quickly by God before the flood of Noah, taken away before this great tribulation. Now what we read in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, is this. Paul connecting back to the Old Testament time frame, knowing things like genealogies are hard to read and pay attention to. He says here in verse 4, Whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. That all these Old Testament Scriptures and all this, all these words we have, they were written for our learning and for our hope. We should derive hope from these words. Hope from people like Enoch who was taken away before the Great Tribulation. And Paul knowing that there was going to be concern with us about the, the tribulation that we are going to experience as a world, or the world is going to experience, he communicates this to the Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. There's that phrase, caught up. Therefore, comfort one another, with these words. And so we have this tremendous comfort that God gives us as we, here's the key, walk with God, we have this opportunity to be caught up with Him. Not to suffer through and endure the tribulation, but to actually be taken out ahead of time. But for those of us that are concerned and have questions about this, and you wonder, how do I, how do I get to walk, how do I get to be taken out before the judgment? Here, here's the key. We see it from Enoch. Here's all that Enoch did, summed up. And Enoch, verse 24, walked with God. This is the key. Enoch walked with God. Now, if you see a couple or people walking out here on Woodlawn, uh, I don't know about you, but I immediately assume they're in some kind of a relationship. Because they're, they're able to talk, to communicate with one another. Whether it's friends or a husband and wife, I look at that and go, they're in some kind of a relationship together. I don't think that automatically when I see people running together. If you want to talk to me or communicate with me, you certainly are not going to go running with me. Because after a few minutes, you're going to see me grabbing my chest. You're probably going to call the paramedics. Because it, it's going to look like, and I might be experiencing a heart attack. I, I'm probably going to die if I'm out here running. And so we're not going to be in a relationship running together. And we're certainly not going to be what appears to be a relationship with if we're fighting together. But we are if we are walking together. You see, for Enoch, he was in a relationship with God, communicating with God as they walked together. Now, he didn't say, I'm going to lace up my shoes and I'm going to go sprinting with you. I'm going to put on the boxing gloves. I'm going to go fight for you, God. And this is important because often we think, what does God have us to do? 
Is God asking me to go run with Him? Is God asking me to fight for Him? What is God asking me to do when what God is actually asking us to do is just simply walk with Him? To be in relationship with Him. But the problem is the world's going to hell all around us. I feel like I need to do something. If you feel like that, then you're actually connecting more with Jeremiah than you possibly could even imagine. If you think about where Jeremiah was as he was there in Jerusalem, in Jeremiah chapter 12, he's there in Jerusalem and he's looking at the city and things are falling apart rapidly. And as he's looking at the city, he's crying out to the Lord, Lord, what would you have me to do? This thing looks like it's going down like the Hindenburg. Well, the Hindenburg wasn't around in Jeremiah's time, but you get the idea. And here's what God says to Jeremiah in verse 5 of chapter 12. If you have run with the footmen and they wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? Jeremiah, you can't even keep up with the footmen. What do you think is going to happen when the horses show up? I mean, here you want to strap on your shoes and you want to go running for God to do for Him, but God's not asking for that. God's asking Jeremiah to trust Him and to walk with Him. The same thing He's asking for us to do, to be in relationship, in community with Him, to trust Him in the spot He has us. Now, for some of us, we might wonder, well, how... How do I even grow close to God? How do I even walk with Him to have that kind of relationship? What James says in James chapter 4, verse 8 is this. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. This is it. I just simply need to draw near to Him, and He will draw near to me. Now James doesn't stop there. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. I love James. Very plain speaking the half-brother of Jesus. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. As you walk with God, what's going to happen is your hands are going to start to get cleansed. The sin is going to start falling off. The the double-minded way in which we live, where I'm this way over here, but I'm that way over there, those things start to, to fall away and we begin to have a real relationship when we simply walk with God. There's hope in that. If I'm going to try to keep up with the horses, there's not much hope there for me. And so the encouragement here is to simply walk with God. Now, as we continue, verse 25, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. So uh, Bible quiz, fun fact, oldest guy in the Bible, if you get asked, Methuselah. And Lamech's name in Hebrew means despairing or lowly. We covered that last week. Now verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the son, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah had five, was 500 years old and Noah begot Shem and Ham and Japheth. And so we see our final name in the Hebrew today. Uh, the name Noah means comfort or rest. Now as I've gone through all those names, there's probably some of you wondering, did I really show up to church for a list of names? 
I mean, is this really what God, what am I supposed to take away from these names? So for those of you in that spot, let me just go through them quickly one more time as if you didn't already get enough the first time. Uh, Adam is man in the Hebrew. Seth appointed. Enosh, mortal. Canaan, sorrow. Mahalel, the blessed God. Jared shall come down. Enoch, teaching. Methuselah, his death shall bring. Lamech, despairing. And Noah, rest. And if you take those names in the exact order that they are in in Genesis chapter 5 and you put them into a sentence, this is it. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. The message of the gospel. I mean, that's unbelievable. This is thousands of year old Hebrew text. And the message of the gospel of Jesus the one who will come down to bring the despairing rest is listed right there. I'm going to read it one more time. It's so cool. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down that teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. The beautiful promise of the gospel in Genesis 5. Now, all that to say this. God is communicating his plan and his purpose for all of humanity through a stinking genealogy. I mean, can you believe that? Through flyover territory in our Scripture. And what we find is God caring infinitely about the details. That this phrase of the devil's in the details, I can't stand it. What I find is that the devil's not in the details. God is in the details. In the details, in the small, minute pieces of our life, in the minutia, in the benign things that we think nobody's going to care about this Thing possibly God doesn't even care. The reality is He is interested. He is interested in you and He is interested in every facet of your life. And to believe anything else is to believe a lie from the pit of hell. God is communicating through the lives of these men. These men who, by the way, didn't know the gospel message was written on their lives. Do you realize that's the case for you? God is writing the gospel, the good news, in and throughout your life. The news of hope in your life. If we just had the perspective to be able to see it. And so, what I wanted to end with today is, can you deny any longer His intentional plan for you in your life? The plan that He has for each and every one of you for a future and a hope. This is what God has for us. Psalm 139, one last place to go in Scripture. Verse 15 is where I'll start, or 14. David writes, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, and how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for being in the midst of the details in the very innermost workings of our life, Lord. Thank you that you loved us so much that you showed up right here at the beginning of our scriptures all the way back to Genesis chapter 5 
in the middle of a genealogy, Lord. Thank you for your promise that has existed from the very beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you care so deeply that nothing escapes your knowledge, that you want to work so much in the, in the very depths of our lives, that this is what you, you told the Apostle Paul to write down in Romans chapter 8. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father, for those promises that nothing can separate us from you. Lord, help us to walk with you and to trust in you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name.